So it was Christmas, 1914, and it was a cold, frozen field in Europe. And there were some British and French and other soldiers across from these German shoulders, German soldiers. And as they're in this, this battle, the first ever war to end all wars, World War I has transpired, and there's all these hundreds of thousands of people that are now being brought into this war. There's this frozen battlefield. And as they're hunkered in, each one of their different bunkers, one of the sides, the British side, starts to sing a song because it's Christmas Eve and starts to sing the song, Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Calm, All is Bright, Round Yon Virgin, Mother and Child, Holy Infant, So Tender and Mild, Sleep in Heavenly Peace. And as they crescendo in their song, they begin to realize that they aren't the only ones singing. And the lyrics had sounded a little bit different, but they realized that as they're singing this song, Silent Night, the German side had also begun to sing Silent Night. And as they crescendoed into the song together, they were singing the same song about the same baby that was born. And as it dissipates, a German soldier shouts out at the top of his lungs, you no shoot, we no shoot. And they begin to slowly creep out of their bunkers and approach the barbed wire fence of no man's land in what's known as the Christmas Day Truce of 1914, where over 100,000 soldiers were a part of an unofficial ceasefire in World War I. This isn't just folklore. This really happened, and this is the headline that ran in England that day. The power of peace in the time of war, the truce in the trenches that brought in the new year. If you need a title for this sermon, it's the power of peace. The power of peace. See, for many of you, I didn't just describe some history. I described uh, your family Christmas, right? It's like you look at your mother-in-law or like your family, your brother, you're like, hey, you know shoot, we know shoot. All right, we'll make it through this thing together. 24 hours, see what I did there? Yeah, that's great. 24 hours, you're like, man, if we can just get this momentary feeling of peacefulness, I'll be satisfied with just like 48 hours of peace. Can I get an amen? So here's the thing. Yep, okay, too many of you. So here's the thing. Is that true peace? Is it true peace to have that momentary feeling? Because what happens when the firing starts back up? What happens when the moment of relent is over? I think that too many of us have believed that the condition of peace is the feeling of peace. And what I mean by that is what is the difference between a momentary feeling of peacefulness and the condition that comes from knowing the war is over? And here's what I've seen in too many people that I meet with and too many people I see. They ride the roller coaster of their emotions and how their circumstances are going lately. And they, ever, they never find peace. And peace is this ever-elusive, static condition that they desire so great. So what is the peace that Jesus has come to offer us this Christmas season? What does it mean for Jesus to be more than a feeling, but to be the Prince of Peace? We're going to go there together in the Scriptures. If you brought your Bible to the second week... Hold it up, hold it up. Okay, we got a lot of Bibles in the room. I gotta ask an important question that I was arguing with my wife about, so this is great to do it here. My question is this, if you think that the movie Elf is overrated, keep your Bible up in the air. If you think the movie, whoa, that's a lot of you guys. Uh, okay, now follow-up question to that, keep your Bible up. Also, if The Grinch is your favorite movie. Okay, just trying to decide. A few of you, the prayer team will be available for you, my friend, after this, red name tag. That was a pastor joke. Okay, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. 
we're going to be reading about this prophecy that happened 700 years before the birth of Christ. But I want you to pay attention to the fact that this prophecy, this invasion plan of heaven, is not just speaking about the arrival of Jesus, but also speaking about when he comes back. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. If you're there, say, I'm there. It says this. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of God. So before we dive into everything that you just read about and all the cultural context, I wanna make sure we're on the same page about the word peace. So the word peace is shalom, shalom. Look at your neighbor and say shalom, shalom. And most of the time when it comes to peace or the word shalom, a lot of us think about this sort of zen state of being, like I'm just at peace. I think of like a surfer on a beach, like I'm just good with whatever. Most of us think of it that way, but true peace, according to the Bible, is actually a restoration process. It's being made whole again. So true peace is not something that you can arrive at. True peace is something that happens when Jesus arrives, which means you'll never fully experience a true peace in this life until he comes back. That's why we're expecting him to come back. But the problem is most of us, when we look at that word shalom or we think about peace, we think it's just the absence of conflict or war, but it's actually the presence of something better. It's the presence of a person. It's the presence of Jesus. But what happens in our lives is when we desire shalom so much, that brokenness inside of you, like you want it to be whole so much that you and I, we try to control the plan. We try to reach for power. So when things are not going our way, that's why you try to manipulate the details. That's why when things get hard and you're, you're in pain, you try to numb it out. It's because you're longing to be restored to this wholeness, to this fullness, to this peace that only God can give you. And I found in my life that the more I try to reach for control, the less I have peace. And the more I relinquish control, the more I find Jesus. And it's wild because Jesus tells us this is what he's going to give us. Check it out in John chapter 14. It says this. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. 
Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Did you know the birth of Jesus is known as the birth of shalom, the birth of arene, which is the Greek word for peace? So let's look back at the story. Let's walk through it one verse at a time. Isaiah 9, verse 1. It says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. See, in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by, way, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. So what's happening in this cultural context? So you have Zebulun and you have Naphtali. Those are the two most northern areas of Israel. Those are in the kingdom of God. Those are the most susceptible to foreign invasion and also the most influenced by foreign culture. And yet, what does he say? He says, in the future... He will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea, meaning this is the gateway for peace to the world. The light will come to the darkest area of God's kingdom, which I think is so important for some of you in this room right now to think about, that maybe the area you think is too dark, maybe the area of your life that's most susceptible to the enemy's attacks, maybe the area of your life where you're constantly tempted and you think the struggle is too much is the place where God wants to deliver you into peace because that's what he does with his people. He shines a light. Verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. This is the same word as shadow of death. Think Psalm 23. You are with me. Emmanuel, God with us. Verse 3, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Now stop right there. He's about to talk about Midian's defeat, which is a reference to Judges chapter six through eight, which is Gideon who annihilates the Midianites. And then every bit of aggressive language he uses after that is connecting back to the Israelites of Egypt. Let's read it. Verse four, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Do you see the intensity? Do you see how lost and how dark and how broken and how chaotic this is? And then look at verse six. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. Isn't it fascinating that the way that God decided to make peace in this life and in this world was not to send some sort of set of principles. No, he sent the Prince of Peace. Was not to give you some new set of rules. No, he sent a new ruler. Was not to give you some new, to, new set of laws. No, he sent a savior, namely his son. And I find it so fascinating that God in heaven, when he looked down at the darkness, at the brokenness, at the pain, when everybody was suffering under the weight, under the yoke, under the bar that was beating them under their shoulders, he did not send judgment down. He did not send another flood down. He did not even drop a bomb. He sent a baby. Isn't it mind-blowing to think that that baby then would grow up to fulfill everything we just read about in Isaiah? Think about Jesus' life. What happens? He will go on to say, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. He will go on to say, I am the good shepherd. I lead you and comfort you with my rod and my staff. And the bar on his shoulders would take the form of a cross that the boot of Rome would pour out and press out every ounce of blood in his body 
So that now you and I, when we come to know Jesus, we we come into a relationship with Jesus, we're no longer destined for fire or separation or darkness from the presence of God. No, because of Jesus now in his blood, now we have access to become a son of the living God, a daughter of the living God, and experience the light of the kingdom of heaven forever. And the reason why I'm trying to make this connection for you It's because this Christmas season, you have to start seeing the manger through the lens of the empty tomb. You have to start to see that this baby arrived, but he's coming back. And this government that he leads, that's on his shoulders, is so much more than just one where he leads in justice and righteousness. He brings you peace. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. If you want to know the point I'm trying to make in like the whole sermon in a sentence, you can write this down. The power of peace in your life is connected to the power God has over your life. The power of peace in your life is connected to the power God has over your life. How much control do you relinquish to God? However much that is will probably dictate your peace. So I want you to think about right now, think about every aspect of your life. Think about your finances, think about your career, think about your future, think about your family. As you think about everything going on in your life and you think about God, do you trust Jesus as the wonderful counselor? In this language right here in the scriptures, Wonderful counselor is like a brilliant military strategist. Like, do you trust him to be the wonderful counselor who has the plan? He's the one who's orchestrating every single detail to make a better plan as you trust him. Do you trust him as the mighty God, the one who has not just the plan, but all the power and control, and he's sovereignly working out every single detail? Do you trust the power that God has? But not only that, he's not just some distant deity separated from our situation. No, he's an everlasting father who cares about you, who knows your name, who knows your situation, who knows your story, and ultimately, do you love him and desire him as the prince of peace? Because here's what I've seen, and I work with a lot of college students, I've seen a lot of college students who want peace, but don't want the prince. A lot of college students, right now, I talk to so many people right now, more than half of everyone I I just know, hey, you're struggling with anxiety, you're struggling with depression, you're struggling with suicidal thoughts, you're struggling with things going on inside of you and you want peace, that's what you want. Your soul is longing for peace and what happens is they come to know Jesus and then all of a sudden they start to experience like this reprieve and they're like, oh my goodness, I actually don't have to worry about all those things and I'm starting to experience peace. But what I've noticed happens is once the feeling of peacefulness is gone, so is their relationship with Jesus because that momentary feeling of peacefulness won't last forever. And so what happens is, is that they have attached their peace through the feeling of peacefulness, not Jesus. They don't actually desire Jesus. They don't actually want Jesus. They just want what Jesus can do for them, which is to give them more peace, to give them the feeling of peace. And so I want to ask you, with that question I just said, does God have the authority in your life to tell you what to do? Because if you're going to give him the power of your life, you have to be willing to let him restore you back to whole. Because what happens is we want this feeling of peacefulness. We don't realize 
that the way Jesus restores us back to whole is he gathers all the broken pieces and he puts us back together in such a way that feels anything but peaceful. The way to true peace sometimes is super painful. But so many of us have just continued to manage the feeling of peacefulness instead of going after the root issue of our peace. Do you want Jesus? Do you want the Prince of Peace? Does he have the authority to tell you what to do? Because verse seven says, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. So yes, you come to Jesus, you will experience peace because he is peace. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Maybe a lot of us are not experiencing peace in our lives because we have a really small view of God. And we're letting evil begin to determine our view of God more than the Bible determine our view of evil. What does it mean for the Bible to say upholding it with justice and peace? Help me out here. Okay, um, you might know the phrase. No justice, no peace. Okay, I was trying to see if we had any Pentecostals in the house. Okay, no justice, no peace, all right? What does that mean? So I think it's really challenging because a lot of us, we want a peaceful God who's not just. Like we want a loving God who doesn't have any wrath. And one of the voices that helped me understand this so deeply was a man named Tim Tim Keller, the late, great Tim Keller. This year he passed away, but he's helped me understand what he calls the wrath of love. What he means by that is he says that most of us, we want love without the wrath. Like we want peace without the justice, but they're so connected. Because the problem is if you want a loving God, you also have to have a just God, one who puts everything back to being right. So think about the relationships in your life where you care the most about. Most of the people who you know get really angry, like righteously angry about certain issues, they do so not in spite of their love, but because of their love. Think about this. The more closely you get to people, the more you know intimately who they are, the more capacity you have for righteous anger when an injustice is done to them. It's why for so many people, it's one thing to care about the foster care system. It's another thing to you know, care about, let's, let's end human trafficking. It's another thing to know the girl's name who was saved out of it. It's because all of a sudden your heart opens up because the sense in you of love and justice are activated together. You want peace. You have to have a just God. The problem is, is that we've contrived in our culture today this view of a loving God who's not allowed to tell us what to do, who's not allowed to be just who's not allowed to tell me how to deal with my sexuality, who's not allowed to tell me to end a relationship that's really toxic, who's not allowed to tell me what to do with the plans because I thought I was going this way, I don't really want to go that way, but he's telling me to go that way. There is a God who is loving and just and he's upholding it with justice and righteousness. So the best analogy I can think about this is the very end of this verse, he says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish it. What does that mean? For the zeal of God to accomplish it. And the analogy that I thought about is, um, I shouldn't say this, but, It's the movie Taken, uh, starring Liam Neeson. I don't recommend this movie because I'm a pastor and I don't recommend it. If you want to learn about God's wrath, maybe. But if, here's the thing. You didn't watch that movie. If you don't know the movie, the movie is Liam Neeson. He answers a call. He's got a super cool voice I tried to mimic for a little while. And he answers this call and he finds out his daughter's been taken. So then the entire movie is him going on this rampage trying to get his daughter back from human trafficking. You didn't watch that movie and think to yourself, man, this guy doesn't love his daughter. You didn't watch that movie at all and think, man, he doesn't value his daughter. You thought to yourself, whoa, 
He really loves his daughter. He really values his daughter. He is willing to do whatever it takes to get her back. And God is no different in his kingdom. That's what it means for him to go from being a mighty God to an everlasting father. It means he looks at you that way. It means that when he thought about, how do I get my daughter, my son back? He had to send his son, the perfect, pure, holy, blameless son of God. And he wasn't like Abraham, where Abraham goes up to sacrifice his son and there's a ram in the thicket. No, his son poured out every ounce of blood. Why? Because he valued you and me and his glory. When you think about God, and when you think about what happened on the cross, you need to understand that for God to be just, for God to be wrath, you need to understand that because if not, you will empty the cross of its meaning. You don't do that. God loves you. He values you. He's an everlasting father and he's bringing about a prince of peace. And he was pleased to do it. Colossians 1 says this, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth and things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So I'm bringing this up to some of you because I just want to shake up that feeling that you have to look at Jesus as this little docile, gentle, sweet baby in a manger and realize that that sweet, docile baby in a manger grew up and he defeated death and hell and sin and he rose from the dead and he's coming back, but he's not coming back as a baby. He's coming back as the lion of Judah who has all of the power, who has all of the might, that in him and for him and by him, all things were created so he can reconcile all things back to himself. And as he comes back as this mighty God, we get to expect him and know, come Lord Jesus. He's coming back. We have to see this God, this powerful prince of peace and what it means for our lives. So I got two quick points. We're gonna address how we actually let this impact our lives. So the first point is this. You have to ask God to address the real issues within you. You have to ask God to address the real issues within you. Like I said, the pathway to peace can be really painful. And what I've seen is a lot of people, they confuse, again, the condition of peace for the feeling of peacefulness. So what happens is you spend your entire life trying to manage the feeling of peacefulness instead of actually addressing the issue that's causing the lack of peace. And what Jesus tells us to do is to go after the real issue. So if you're a Christian in the room, look at me real quick. We do this thing called spiritual bypassing. It means you become a follower of Jesus, and then all of a sudden now you have to act like you have it all together. It's like you become a follower of Jesus. I'm like, I'm always supposed to be peaceful. I'm always supposed to be full of joy. I'm always supposed to be this certain way because now I know Jesus. And what happens is we spiritually bypass the real issues. So we never address the anger that's inside of us. We never confess the sin anymore because now we've got to keep it all together. We never really do the things that will cause us to experience real freedom. So we run and we avoid and we deny when the whole time we stay with this sense of lack of peace and then call it faith. Don't spiritually bypass. What he's saying here is, in the scriptures, I think, is he's trying to get us to see that we have to address the real issues within us. What is causing the condition? I talk to so many people, again, who they, they kind of talk about peace as this like resolve to be okay, like this defeatist mentality. I'm just gonna resolve to be okay. And then and if they get past that, then they're like, well, I'm just gonna release the outcomes to God. And I'm just telling you today that I think God wants to do more than that. I think he wants to restore you on a deep level to peace. And Paul says it this way, Philippians 4, the Lord 
is near. Can I get an amen just from that? The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Gee, thanks, Paul. I'll try my best. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You want to know the how you address the issue deep within you? Here it is. Present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, transcends your ability to even process how peace is accessed, will be yours. So I love thinking about prayer, and I think so many people think that, you know, God's going to get some new information. God knows what's going on. He's not going to get any new information. What happens when you pray and you present your request to God, when you pour your soul out to God, when you tell him what's really going on, when you confess the sin that's deep within you, it's you falling into a deeper intimacy with him. It's not about giving him new information. It's about a deeper intimacy available. And you can step into this relationship where he wants to give you peace, but not just for peace sake, for wholeness sake. And so he does this thing where the Lord is near and the peace which transcends all our understanding. And I want you to think about that. Think about the next time you have a lie coming your way. Think about like a bodyguard of peace blocking it. The next time your heart feels deceived and broken, you got a bodyguard of peace standing in the way. So present in every situation what's going on within you. So that's number one. You gotta ask God to address the real issues within you. And number two is this. Choose to make peace with others around you. Choose to make peace with others around you. This is so convicting for me. So my question for you is, do you make peace or do you keep the peace? Meaning, do you placate, do you appease, do you give in? Or do you truly make peace? On our staff, we talk about illuminating the tension, not eliminating it. I wanna bring it to light because probably that tension, that conflict, God wants to heal something. So do you keep the peace? Do you avoid the hard conversation or do you make peace? You know, in studying about peace all week, I came across, of course, the United Nations, which if you don't know about the United Nations, they were formed to create international peace. And I found this fascinating, that if you look at the flag for the United Nations, it has the whole world and it's held up by two branches, olive branches, which are the international symbol of peace, which I don't know if the whole world knows this, but it's actually a reference in the Bible back to Noah. So if you think about the moment where the world had been flooded and Noah comes back out and he sends out a dove and the dove lands back, he has a olive branch, right? What does that mean for you? That means all of a sudden no one knows. Hey, there's peace on earth. And the next time a dove will descend will be from heaven as the Holy Spirit on Jesus as he is baptized. And that's when God gives identity before the ministry of Jesus. And he says, this is my son with whom I love. I am well pleased. That's that moment that's so powerful. And then you think about fast forward the life and the ministry of Jesus. What happens? The last night before he dies, he is sitting under an olive branch tree in the Garden of Gethsemane before he is pressed out and given over the next day on the Roman cross. And then he becomes the olive branch. He becomes the peace offering to the world. And then what's so beautiful is the first thing he says when he comes back, he says, peace be with you. Paul says that he himself became our peace. But you know what's beautiful? Is that he calls all of us to be peacemakers because of it. Because now God dwells in us. And so I find this interesting. I don't know if anybody else does, but the Sermon on the Mount, which is the manifesto for how we are supposed to live in the kingdom of God. The manifesto, Jesus says this. I'm gonna put it on the screen. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Isn't that weird? Like he always has some like, it makes sense, like argument with all the other blessed are those. And here he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Why? I think he's connecting our identity to peace. He's attaching something to us as children of God, which means that this is how you know, this is how people in the world will know that you belong to God, how you make peace. That is what he's saying. He's saying, blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the ones who will be children of God. So if you're asking the question, how do I make peace? How do I restore shalom? Here's maybe the whole sermon for for just you, if you're wondering how to do this. Extend love beyond expected boundaries. That is how you make peace with the world around you. That is how you make peace with others around you. You have to extend love beyond the expected boundaries, which means even if it wasn't your fault that the relationship is broken, you have to be willing to take the step to restore it. And here's what, here's what I'm really trying to say. I'm really trying to say that making peace is not simply about changing the situation. Making peace is about God changing your spirit in the situation. It's about God doing something in you. It's like, you know what? I'm going to take the next step. So if you want to know how to make peace, what is your next step that makes God look like your father? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. What is your next step to make peace that makes God look like your father? That is what it means to make peace with others around you. So I got one final question that I just want us to kind of process together before we worship And it's this question right here. What is causing your lack of peace today? What is causing your lack of peace today? If you think about it, what are you most anxious about in this life? What are you most frustrated by? What are you broken by? You know, for me, I can't really speak to your situation, but I can only speak to my situation. I think the thing that I get most anxious about is my kids. Any parents in the room immediately smiled, I think, because it's probably you too. The thing you're most anxious about and I'm, on, I'm honestly just kind of dumbfounded by the fact that we sang so much of what we did and we started with Psalm 23. And if you don't know much about my story, I have a son named Griffin and then I had a son born at the beginning of this year. His name was Shepherd, And we named him Shepherd because we'd actually walked through some miscarriages and that led us to be like, man, we felt like God shepherded us through it. So our word for the year as a family was shepherd. And then in February, I preached a message about Psalm 23. I lack nothing. He's our shepherd. And my prayer has been since he was born, God, give this little boy the heart of David. Make him courageous. Give him your heart. Well, three months into his, his life, he was really low on weight. And so we're in this checkup and this appointment. And we find out that he has a hole in his heart. And one, I was like, God, I didn't ask for that kind of heart. Okay, like just too much. And then I did what any sane parent would do. I went to WebMD. I looked up VSD and what it means. It gives you a lot of peace if you do that, by the way. Just kidding. And, and we began to, to start this journey. And this is a picture I have of him. And we're at this appointment and they said, hey, it's, it's looking pretty bad. I know he's cute. He's looking pretty bad. You gotta come back in four days to a specialist because the size that I'm reading will require open heart surgery, the size of this hole. And so we scheduled an appointment to try to figure out what was wrong. And I just gotta tell you, in my story, it's like, God, you, 
You can break my face, which happened a month before this. God, you can take my ministry. You can take anything you want from me. Not a him. Not my son. Anything else. Not him. And I don't have time to go into all the miracles, like the first appointment we went to and the doctor measured it and it was the exact largest it could be without needing open heart surgery right away. He said, you know what, maybe we can pray for something and just come back in a week. He said, the only thing that could really happen is somehow there's some tissue that comes from some other place because if it comes from certain parts of the heart, it'll make his heart really actually weak in areas. It'll cause more pressure on his heart. So you just gotta start praying and believing that maybe there's some sort of tissue that could close this hole. And so I enlisted all the ACC prayer warriors and I texted a bunch of friends and family. And then the next appointment we go to, we see this, this hole and we see this little piece of tissue starting to grow. And appointment after appointment, we saw it growing and growing and growing and growing. And he said, you really need to pray that that would attach to close the hole. And I began watching after appointment after appointment after appointment as this slowly started, this little tissue that came out of nowhere, the exact space it needed to begin to close over the hole in his heart. And I watched as he was physically restored, as God restored the hole in my son's heart. I tell you that because that is what God is doing to some of you. You have this hole, this lack of peace, this thing in you that you have not given up. You just won't give up this fight. You won't confess it. You won't tell anyone about it. But that thing, God is wanting to close and make you whole again. He's wanting to restore you back to the way he created you. And peace is a person. And that person, all of your promises, rest on an empty tomb. Because here's how peace became personal to me. I told you all the details of the story, right? I didn't tell you how God was personal to me in the story. See, because I wake up on April 10th, which is the day we're supposed to go find out if my son is supposed to have open heart surgery. And I open up my Bible, you know, one of those moments, I'm like, God, I really need to hear from you. And I open up to Psalm 78, because that was just the next Psalm that I was reading for in my Bible reading plan. Psalm 78, you know how it ends? It ends, I chose David, my servant, because he will shepherd with integrity of heart. I'm like, God, you have to be kidding me. So I'm just gonna keep reading. Psalm 79, I get there and it says, we are the sheep of your pasture and we will praise you forever. I'm like, I'm gonna keep going. Verse 80, Psalm 80, if you read there, Psalm 80 starts, restore us or hear us, shepherd of Israel, restore us. I'm like, yeah, you have to be kidding me. And so because of the accident that I'd had a month earlier, I was reading a book called Waymaker that someone had given me. And I'm like, you know what, I'll, I'll just read some of that because this is a little overwhelming. I open up to chapter 13 on April 10th of this book called Waymaker. The title of the chapter, Open Heart Surgery can't make this up. Open heart surgery. And I begin to read about this author who adopted a girl named Shalom, who had a heart condition that God miraculously healed. And the whole point of the chapter was to tell us or whoever is reading it, that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, that the Lord is near to those who are broken. that's not even the best part. We keep going. I'm like, oh my goodness, God, what, what now, right? So I get in my car and I'm driving and I'm with my wife and, and we get to the doctor's office. And again, we're here to find out if my son has to find, get open heart surgery. And as we get to my, the doctor's office, I'm like trying to pull up my phone. Cause I'm like, you have to read these Psalms that I just read this morning. Like Psalm 78, 79, all these, these are amazing. And I open the Bible app, you know, the version Bible app that everyone uses, millions of people follow. You want to know the verse that is the verse of the day for April 10th. 2023, you can go back and look at it yourself. You wanna know that verse is? 
Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart. I can't really describe peace to you. I can tell you I've experienced it. And I walked in to that doctor's appointment and I remember being like, doc, you don't even need to hook him up. Like, he's getting a new heart. Like, it's gonna be fine. And I say that because only God, only God would be that personal. And it's not just for me. I'm just the one with the microphone. God is that person, that personal for you. Only God would know that six months ago, this would happen where I read a chapter about a little girl named Shalom. And then Miles randomly say, hey, do you wanna take peace, Shalom, out of the Christmas series? Only God would be able to orchestrate the details that we can't even see. And I'm telling you that because only God knows why you're walking through the miscarriage. Only God knows why the depression and anxiety have been so hard. Only God knows why when you tried to commit suicide, it didn't work. Only God knows why as you continue to fight through the eating disorder, you're not alone. Only God knows why you have to have heart surgery this week. Only God knows why, but you can trust him because he's the Prince of Peace and the government will be on his shoulders. You need to know today that your peace does not have to ride the roller coaster of your feelings or your emotions or what's going on in your life or your circumstances lately. Your peace is founded in a person named Jesus whose tomb was empty. So we're gonna enjoy Jesus together. And we're gonna sing about peace in just a second. So I just wanna invite you to maybe put everything away that you have. We're gonna take communion together. If you didn't get a set on the way in, you can just raise your hand. We will bring a communion set so you can experience this. If you're not a believer in Jesus, man, this is the time. This is the time to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Christmas is so much more than just a baby being born. It's the promise that he's coming back. So I just wanna invite you husbands, maybe you pray over your wives. This is the time to go there. Like if you have an issue, something happening in your family, don't wait until later and think you're gonna talk about it. Right now, pray over the situation, pray over the circumstance. If you came with a friend, maybe that's what you need to do. You just need to pray that God would bring you peace in whatever's happening right now. I can't know your situation, but the Holy Spirit does. So let's take this time, let's enjoy this moment. Keep your hands up again, and then we'll worship together.